This podcast number 862 with Quan Lin Hung, author of a new book entitled Solve It Yourself, Fix the World's Problems with Science, is brought to you by Dr. Ian Brooks, the author of a new book entitled Intention, Building Capabilities to Transform Your Story. Dr. Ian Brooks is the Chief Executive Officer and Founder of Roadsmith Consulting and has been in the organizational development and human and capital field for over 20 years. In my interview with him, we discuss about transformation, organizational development, strengthening capabilities for achieving harmony and success. Uh, Dr. Ian Brooks recommends that we build our foundation, be conscious of it, and invest in ourselves to get to where we want to go. If you want to learn more about Dr. Ian Brooks, his coaching programs, and his new book, Intention, Building Capabilities to Transform Your Story, please visit his website at www.roadsmith.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this podcast. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And joining me from Upper State, New York, right? That's where you are now? Tell me. Upper Manhattan, yep. Upper Manhattan uh, is Kunlin Kun. And he is the author of a brand new book. Well, I say brand new book, Solve It Yourself. How to Fix the World's Problems with Science. And uh, you're going to find out when I give the intro um, that he has a lot of science background. And um, he's been working with Mount Sinai. He is the developer of something called openboxscience.org as well. Um, I'm going to tell our listeners uh, a little bit about you. Uh, born and raised in Taiwan. Uh, Survive, or, or I'm sorry, serves as assistant professor of genetics and genomic science. And how do you say it? It's ICANN School of Medicine. Is that correct? Yep, ICANN School of Medicine at Mount at Sinai. Mount Sinai, New York. Earned his BA with honors in studio art and an honors in molecular, molecular biology at Westland University and subsequently obtained a PhD from Washington University in St. Louis, my old stomping grounds. Um, oh. I used to live there <laughs> a long time ago yeah. at Mount Sinai. Uh, uh, leads the computational omnics lab. Is that right? Yeah. Um, that's dedicated to solving pressing challenges in human diseases, uh, and published extensively in top tier scientific journals. He's also the founder and chief unboxer of openboxscience.org, which you can go to that at openboxscience.org, a platform that organizes uh, open scientific seminars connecting science around the world. And obviously has a passion because he wants individuals to start solving the world's biggest problems. Quan uh, uh, has uh, spoken at dozens of universities, companies, conferences about biomedical research and the STEM PhD career path. Uh, I love his a statement. A good day in his life typically involves people, books, dark chocolate, uh, booba tea, 
hiking, surfing, and tennis, and a 20-minute nap. Um, I think that uh, it about rounds it up. That's perfect. If we could all get that in every day, that'd be great. The picture at his website shows him, where are you? Where are those mountains there with the legs in the air? Oh, that one is in uh, Colorado. Colorado. Well, it yeah. certainly is a gorgeous picture. Uh, and it looks like maybe you were doing a little bit of yoga or something. I'm not quite certain, but, um, or you were running the, on those boulders over there. Now, you know, this book starts off and I think it, it's really important. People learned a little bit about you. They've learned a little bit about your passion. They need to understand the book is primarily a Kindle book for 99 cents that all the proceeds go to the charity of our listeners choice when they purchase the book. And there's a little form there you fill out when you, when you do this. Um, but you start off the book with a story about Stuart Brand in 1968. You state that this story and what he developed, which was the Whole Earth Catalog, uh, catalog popularized the do-it-yourself philosophy. Um, can you tell the story and why it's so important to the SIY? Uh, solve it yourself um, uh, book that you've just written and are asking people to dive in with their passions and their purpose uh, and their responsibility and help change the world in, in big ways. Yeah. Thanks, Greg. First of all, thank you so much for the invitation and it's really an honor to be on your podcast. I think it's going to a thousand pretty soon and that's a really, uh, you know, remarkable admirable effort 15 years 15 years years (laughs) not longevity i need to learn a lot from you i'll I'll poke your brain about that later okay yeah and uh yeah as you said that uh you know the solve it yourself is really one variation of the do-it-yourself philosophy which Stuart brand did not invent it but he was the one that really helped um pioneer a lot of concepts and help um, broaden the scope and also through publishing Whole Earth Catalog really helps spread the message. And many of you probably know it better than me because you're probably, you know, living in this country in that time and know more about it. But, you know, he basically come up with a lot of uh, really ingenious ideas. He like asked people why we haven't seen a picture of the earth when people are going to space and then he sell bottoms for it for 25 cents. And then that helped NASA to decide, oh, maybe we should take a picture of the earth. And we will really start seeing the earth at this beautiful globe from the space. And that really helps inspiring people the idea of why we should take care of the planet. This is one of the most beautiful planet we can see from space. And it's the only one we have. And you know, there's, an- there's another guy too. You didn't mention him in your book, but I actually wrote, a segment in a book that was done about him and it was uh, Buckminster Fuller. And he used to talk about spaceship earth. That's that's, and this is in a time back actually in the same time as uh, Stuart Brand. And if you don't know much about Buckminster Fuller, many of my um, listeners do um, geodesic dome was uh, one of his inventions. Uh, uh, Diametron car, um, it was really a fascinating man. And um, I think what you're doing is the DIY. We see a lot of do-it-yourself. Look, everybody can go to Google and Google a video on how to do something themselves. 
that the spirit of that DIY um, lives on every day. It lives on, um, and today to resolve the day-to-day affairs, right? We're talking about just easy stuff, um, but rarely have we taken this, as you said in the book, mentally more seriously and apply it to the world's problems. If you would speak about the SIY framework to assist us in solving more of the social problems, and in your book, you outline everything from climate change to diseases, you speak about the pandemic, um, things that we've solved actually, well, I don't know if we've solved it, but pretty quickly, we've we've at least gotten a vaccine faster than the, any other vaccine that's come out. So speak with our audience because... You know, this is, in one sense, this book is great, and it's asking people to look at these issues. In another sense, it takes a ton of discipline to do it. And I'm not certain everybody has a discipline, so I'd love to see them have the discipline you have. Right. Yes. I don't know if I'm a a man of discipline, too, but that's the reason why we have systems and to push yourself on this path of making it easier Mm -hmm. and help us achieve the goal. And as you say, you know, we do DIY to assemble furniture, but why don't we do it for climate change, for social media addiction? And the four simple steps in this SIY solve it yourself framework is really going from identifying the root cause. So obviously with any problem like the pandemic, like climate change, like social media abuse, we want to know why it really happens. And after that, we want to kind of switch our mindset instead of blaming other people that, you know, like... No single person deliberately caused climate change, probably. Not, not a single person deliberately caused the whole um, social media fake news things we have. But each of us probably have a minor part to take in it. And even if we don't, you know, the earth really is our biggest legacy. So why don't we own up our responsibility and shifting our mindset from blaming others to taking a look at what we can actually do ourselves? And the next step is to take proven action. And this is a part where I borrow a lot from my science backgrounds. I don't personally do like all the research in the world, but obviously to solve a single problem, like to solve a pandemic or to solve the climate change, there's different ways that people propose to solve the problem. But the different solutions have different level of evidence. And normally we want to look at evidence to see what actually works and what is the most effective out of the thing we can each individually do. And lastly, after you have done all these, I think it's important for us to each enlarge our impact. I think you can, once you make the action a habit, it becomes fairly simple for everyone to do. But in the process, and I give many examples that you might actually move a lot of people around you. People see that you are bringing containers to stores to reduce reduce plastic use, obviously in a non-pandemic time, your friends might start follow suit People see that you walk to work instead of, you know, driving a five minute distance every day. They might follow suit, that kind of thing that mm-hmm. it will really enlarge an impact and eventually help us achieve the overall goal of solving these really seemingly complex social problems that seems to be exclusive to the government and big corporations. But really, each of us have a role to play. Well, I really appreciate the stories that evolve from individuals, young people, old people alike, but primarily more young people, especially the guys right now that have formed a big nonprofit that's cleaning the plastic out of the ocean. 
um, and the, the kind of products they've made from the plastic that they've actually pulled from the ocean, including face masks, um, which I thought was kind of fascinating. Um, you know, you really look at a problem like that, which, you know, the garbage patch in the middle of the Pacific Ocean is, is, is a monumental problem. Um, and these guys are going at it and they're tackling it one day at a time. And uh, uh, kudos to them. And that is something that started from two surfer guys on the beach, right? Picking up plastic. And I think it's that, it can be that simple, but it also can be a lot more complicated. Um, you know, you spoke about the coronavirus at length and using it as an example of how to drill down to the root cause of asking the simple question of why. Um, you just mentioned why. Speak with us about addressing these kinds of problems um, with the Simon Sinek why question. You know, Simon's been on the show. Uh, he probably has more hits on his uh, podcast than anybody else. But the reality is, is that the why is the big question. Um, and what is it in your estimation as a scientist, as a researcher, as somebody who's looking at genomics, who's looking at how to solve some of our challenges with um, diseases, right? Um, how, how, why is the why so important? Yeah, Greg, thanks for mentioning this. And why I think is one of the greatest gifts we all have to really dive into our own curiosity, but also really dive into the cause of any problems we may have. Uh, Silent, obviously a great writer and philosopher, has this book, Start With Why, and he really wants people to dive into their purpose and organization's purpose before they address the how of they do it and what they do. And I think in our particular case of Solve It Yourself, the why is really helping us get to the root of the problem. And Greg, as you mentioned, we talk about the coronavirus pandemic in the book. And I think asking why help us to go from emotional response to a potential pandemic. I think especially in the spring of 2020 that a lot of us in New York, I'm sure many other places really felt this emerging threat that just caused so much anxiety and we didn't know what to do about it. I don't know if you remember Last year, when it was unclear how this is all spreading and suddenly affecting all the people in New York, uh, our hospital had to sell, set up a field tent in Central Park, and um, people are just consumed by this emotion. But in the meantime, I think it helps to dive into the scientific self and maybe start doing a little bit of rationalization and your curiosity. So maybe as okay, why are the cases really going up so high in New York? Well, must be like every person who's infected is infecting more than one person so that the case will grow like exponential curve. And why would that be? Well, it seems like most of these cases, when people dive into it, come from a lot of these indoor super spreading events. And then they really keep asking why to realize, okay, it's likely an airborne virus. A lot of these involve people like talking, singing to each other in an indoor space. And then, you know, once you dive in enough, you realize that, okay, so there are obviously complex solutions that us as scientists need to develop in the long run, like a vaccine. But in the short term, maybe we can all each take simple steps like, okay, maybe we start wearing masks. And yeah, see, once we start wearing masks, a lot of the transmissions that happen 
are much, much less. And I think even in the early, early reports back then where we didn't know as much, but because people are asking why, they realized that even in the hospital environment, when people are wearing all these protective gears, they really have a reduced case count. And that's why it's important that, you know, before you freak out about all these problems, like, you know, all these things are so, seem so big, right? Climate change, um, social media addiction, um, you know, cancer, Alzheimer's disease. But if you keep diving down into why, you eventually identify the tractable causes and then you can focus on the action you can take. And so that's why it's so critical that we keep asking ourselves why and asking multiple whys in a row is particularly helpful. Well, it uh, it's kind of deductive reasoning. I think when people go to innovate, uh, it's divergent thinking. Uh, innovation sometimes requires a disruption. Uh, as you know, as a scientist, um, I think you wrote in the book that a guy was eating poop to get rid of his cancer. Um, not something that you know I would think about doing. It was uh, it wasn't his own poop. It was the poop of a. Uh, a goat or something. A llama. Um, that was just a, a toy example. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I remember that part. Um, it, was, it was interesting. Now, in your section of the book called Mindset, Own Your Responsibility, uh, you, mem- uh, you mentioned, um, uh, I hope I get his name right, is it Yafat Seskine, uh, the executive director of a nonprofit called Madre? And it means mother. Um, and uncertain times, think like a mother, is what he said. Uh, own your responsibility like a caring parent would. Um, what does it take to have the passion to own responsibility? Because you mentioned about, you know, we had the uh, Statue of Liberty on the East Coast, and we should have had the Statue of Responsibility on the West Coast. I actually think it was him that said that, or somebody. But the point was, is that, you know, when you say the word responsibility, to me, I define it up in two sections, response and ability. Hmm. It's our response and our ability. Now, I think a lot of people can respond. The question is, do they have the skill set and the ability to respond to whatever it is that they're trying to address? How would you help people get their hands around that and try and find solutions? Because this is about solve it yourself. Yeah, Greg. And uh, I think it's so clever that you dive it separated to response and ability. And a lot of the time, it seems like, you know, you got to have a lot of power to be able to solve things, right? And, you know, here I like to make another quote to the Superman movie, a Spider-Man movie, sorry, where instead of saying, with great responsibility comes great power. With great power comes great responsibility. You can flip it around and say, with great, great responsibility comes great power. And um, this is this is a quote, I think, uh, spin around by uh, Mark, who's the author of How to Unfuck Yourself or something like that. Yeah. Sorry for misquoting the book. But, you know, if you think about it, you don't actually need to be a Superman before you solve the problem. If you own the responsibility, you can solve so many problems. I think you can see this from, I see this from a lot of examples. I'm not a parent myself yet, but I see this from example, so many parents of my own and my friends who become parents, like before they become parents, you're like, oh, that party guy, how can he ever raise his kid? 
And but once you know that guy had a baby, he like can do so many things. Right. And also something about this is that if we if we all see, for example, the Earth as a legacy we have, like how our kids are legacy we have as parents, then we wouldn't say that you know our kids' education is screwed up. But let's protest their government and wait for them to change the whole education system. Right. And not not do anything about it in the meantime because we don't have power. Right. Even if we don't have you know the best solutions. We probably try to do everything we can to read them the good books, to bring them to do sports, go to nature, all that kinds of stuff. Before we demand the systematic change from someone who's more powerful, uh, you know, quote. Because a lot of times you really have the power once you assume the responsibility. So I think here that's why it's really a mindset shift. Actually, um, owning this responsibility can seem challenging, but as you said, as the book has mentioned, that it can actually be very empowering and very relieving. That instead of you know seeing these as really cumbersome issues, um, once you have own the responsibility, actually it becomes very actionable, and you feel like you have the power to address it. I like how you address that because I think for a lot of people listening, they might look at these overarching world issues like climate change and diseases and all kinds of things and droughts and things that we're trying to solve to be monumental. Yet, it, as you said, it comes from taking the responsibility and then drawing the people and community around you to support you, um, including the scientists and other people to make it happen. That doesn't mean um, uh, that you can't be a leader in that area and still continue to drive forward the cause because a lot of these are causes, but behind the cause have to be a lot of researchers and scientists and people that understand it, that sometimes the people driving the cause aren't those people, uh, but they are the ones that are out there trying to make a difference and, and make a change. Um, I, I look at... Um, in our own, and I'm trying to remember his name right now, uh, Cesar Chavez. You know, Cesar Chavez was here in California leading the movement for um, equality for farm workers, right? Because farm workers were treated so bad. And if it hadn't have been for that movement, um, the farming community and the people that work in that community may still be working under it's extremely adverse conditions. Not that the conditions still aren't adverse, but uh, Cesar Chavez was certainly an example of somebody who stood up. Um, we have many of those kind of people. So you say having a purpose is certainly important to being passionate about solving a big problem. That goes to my example of Cesar Chavez. He had a purpose. He had passion. Um, how do you find your purpose and drive as a professor of genetics and genomics to solve big problems, you personally. That's, oh, okay. So that's not about this book, but yeah, I think obviously I, like most people, are always in a search of purpose. And I think something Well, it, that- is, it is about the book when it comes down to your purpose. I think it's important for listeners sometimes when they want to know the author, they want to know what drives them too. So I threw this question in there. <laughs> it's a great question. Every question that requires extra thinking. You know, I think goes also into, you know, I think solving a fulfilling career section of a book where I write about, you know, a lot of the times we live the life of what others expect of us. 
but really we want to dig in and find what we are really here meant to do. And this is not a simple exercise. I still journal periodically and revise my vision all the time. But I think several time points could be helpful. And one thing is that if you remember back to the day, I don't know if you, Greg, you remember that when, when you were a child and people ask you, what do you want to be as a child? What do you say back then? What did I say? Yeah. I, I, actually, I actually think, if I remember correct, that I wanted to be an actor. I know that sounds kind of weird. I never became an actor, but I'm a I'm a podcaster. <laughs> Close enough. Actually, it's very related, right? Yeah. So yeah, 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 and 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 I think that that time point is really helpful because that's before you know people tell you that oh you can't be the president or you can't be an astronaut because all these reality constraints. And at that time, also when people ask you that, likely you are not thinking about all the social hierarchy we have, all the money you can have gained from, you know, being a banker versus working in an NGO, that kind of stuff. And so that probably reflects your passion in a way that, you know, your 25-year-old answer probably doesn't in some way, but maybe for some people it does. And so one thing that, you know, I really enjoyed doing as a kid was, and I think my one of my really formative teacher in high school assigned us this thing to tell us, Write down your dream in 10 years of what you want to do and be as ambitious as you could without any constraint. At that time, I was really actively swimming. I swam six hours a day back then. And I, I wrote that I will swim in the Olympics and be a biology professor in 10 years because also I really love going to nature with my family and uncover all these secrets of nature that you, know, you can't just see with bare eyes without much thinking, that kind of stuff. And so I think... You know, having constant visiting to your vision really helps because, you know, now 10 years later, or now a little past 10 years later, I, I didn't make it to the Olympics, unfortunately, but at least one of, out of the two came true. And I really enjoy, you know, diving into what nature really has encoded for us. I think solving mystery is a lot of fun. But at the same time, I am so lucky because I get to do this in the meantime while I think that I personally really enjoy being as healthy as I could and I want to help other people. Um, I personally been troubled by different diseases at different time points. And I think it really helps if we can have better ways to prevent, diagnose, or even treat some of the diseases. So in doing that, I think I merged my interests in the curiosity of nature of biology with what we can do using big data to find better ways to predict and now diagnose and treat disease. And so now, you know, I can really pursue this as a passion in my job. And, you know, I have no problem working extra hours, et cetera, because it's just fun to do so. It's it's what you love doing. You know, uh, I think it was Stephen Kotler, the Art of Impossible book. He said, you know, you get focus for free, focus. Um, You then have curiosity curiosity turns into passion. So there's a kind of a formula here. Passion, your three greatest passions then turn into the purpose. Uh, The purpose then turns into the goals that you will set, both proximal goals and the goal setting. And then after the goal setting, when you're not achieving what you want, it's determination and grit that actually take you to the finish line. So when you look at a little bit of the formula and you look at the steps, I always tell my listeners, look, you get, you get uh, focus for free. 
focus is there, but the reality is focus is probably one of the most important things to say, I'm going to take all the other distraction, put them aside and put all my energy because we only have so much energy to give to any one thing, right? And the if you look at your wildly important goal, the way to to do that, I had a great interview the other day um, with Jim Hewling about the four disciplines of execution. And, you know, he, he used an analogy, um, Quan, of uh, air traffic controller with 23 planes trying to land. And he said, well, you know what? You may have in your mind 23 things you have to do today, but there's no way possible you're going to get all 23 done. So how are you going to pick the one plane that's going to land and you're going to make sure you get it done correctly, Craig? And I thought that's a really good analogy. It's a great analogy because everybody out there has lots of distractions of other things they can do that take them from their purpose, that take them from their passion, that take them from setting that goal um, because they now have given more importance to that. And I think that's probably one of the most important things. Now, you speak about choosing actions uh, that are provided to address the root cause. And I think this is what I was just talking about is action. Can you give us an example of a problem that has been solved and the actions that needed to be taken to solve it? It could be in your personal life or it could be the pandemic uh, about two months ago, I ordered uh, Bill Gates's book on climate change. I haven't even finished that one yet. But the point is, is everybody out there could say, okay, uh, I know what it is, but how do I take the action? Yeah. And Greg, like you said, focus is very important in terms of choosing the right action to take first, because obviously with every problem, you know, with climate change, I think pandemic is probably the easiest example because now we are solving it. I think climate change, there's still a lot of parameters. Um, so, you know, if we look at the pandemic as an example, you know, there are different actions that are proposed at different times. And among all the possibilities, typically you want to focus the one with credibility. I think that's one of the hard challenge that we're facing now and we'll face more and more as mankind because now we have more and more things on social media. A lot of the things it's hard to validate whether it's true or not. And now there's even better, better methods using machine learning and AI to generate different levels. Very fast, very fast uh, opportunity to change. You know, speak with our listeners because you're, look, you're in genomics and um, biochemistry. And, you know, Moderna worked with some people in Germany, and I heard some of the stories, and they used a new delivery method with the Moderna vaccine that J&J did not use. Um, I'm quite, I don't know if you know this or not, but I would think somebody in your field of science would. What made that delivery system so unique, and what are the positives? Because when you think about it, they did this in less than a year. It was the way in which we... Uh, I guess the uh, uh, the vaccine gets uh, into our system. Yeah, I think uh, the vaccine paradigm is entirely different. And I think this comes to, you know, choosing the action. They have chosen a smarter action, although, you know, this spans the history of decades. And I think it, would, it was hard to predict because I think both in Germany, um, I think it was a husband and wife team and also 
right. um, in Penn State, which is uh, also a professor scientist who has just been reluctantly working on this mRNA vaccine technology for decades when people didn't necessarily think that it would be a great solution because at that time, the technology is still immature. And actually, the U.S. scientists has a hard time obtaining the government funding at that time to do research. Luckily, the technology development continued to happen with their persistence. And the reason that it has worked so effectively and the vaccine design is much faster is that they're able to look into the nucleic acid and design the mRNA instead of generating the traditional antibody. And with that, they can just synthesize the mRNA sequence, which then get delivered into the body to produce the antigen and your body triggers the immune response. I'm not an immunologist myself, so I do the part of figuring out the sequence and what the sequence mean. Uh, the immunologists actually deliver the vaccine. And then also, once they have the mRNA, they put it in different vehicles of different kinds of molecules to be absorbed by the body. Traditional vaccines might use variations of other viruses to carry the encoded uh, vaccine into the body, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So I think, but, you know, in the hindsight, it's easy that, you know, oh, of course, mRNA vaccine would have worked better. But, you know, 20 years ago, when that technology was still very mature, let's say if you're solving a pandemic 20 years ago, or even five years ago, 10 years ago, like the first SARS, that solution was not ready. And yeah. you can say that's a better action. But we know that, you know, as scientists, normally we are not conflicted. And if we are, we will report it. And that's a great thing about scientists because, you know, in the papers we published, we don't, if we have a company that's associated with profit, then we'll have to disclose that and you know that. We are not like just random tweeters on the internet that, you know, I might actually be promoting my own product and say, oh, this right. vaccine is great because right. actually, actually like right. I would get 5% cut from, you know? <laughs> right. So I think if you look at scientific self-serving, self-serving. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. Well, you explained it really well and I didn't want to diverge too much, but I I do believe that that's a great example of how something happened. I also watched a recent PBS special that changed the longevity of human uh, life um, by 20 years, which was penicillin. And it was interesting, the development of penicillin in London in the late 1800s, and then Pfizer took it on here to actually develop it in in mass uh, doses uh, to be able to give it. When you look at one drug that really changed the trajectory of the human life expectancy, it obviously has been penicillin. And it's pretty, and they said the, the second drug was the drug for AIDS because we were losing so many people to AIDS. So it's, to me, just a fascinating uh, field, your science and where it is. Now, um, you speak about uh, Ferdado Prado and the Prado principle, the 80-20 principle. Um, and I think most people know it, but it's that uh, if, you, if you had anything, just take anything, um, that 20% produces 80% of your results, right? That's basically, so it's about focus, right? Um, what uh, and how does this and how can it help us in solving big problems, this Pareto principle? Everybody's heard the Pareto principle. Not everybody probably knows exactly what it is, but you you mentioned it in the book. 
Yeah. And so Pareto principle is also famously known as the 2080 principle. Yeah. And really from Pareto, who's gardening, realized that, you know, 80% of his peace comes from 20% of the plants. So he could have just focus on caring for the 20% of the plants. And this really transforms also into taking social actions. I think a lot of people, for example, have written climate change books, but a lot of these has focused on social activism and it's not my expertise because, you know, these require lobbying to the government, big corporations. But let's say among the things we can individually do, you know, what can we reduce the carbon footprint the most, right? And that's the kind of thing that, you know, this book is trying to investigate. You know, obviously there's all these things. We can turn off the light bulbs. We can make our fridge more energy efficient. We can walk to work. We can do all these things. But let's say if you're only disciplined enough to make one change to your lifestyle, what should that be to reduce the carbon footprint the most? And so with this, that's why it's really helpful to know some of the scientific studies. And obviously I'm not expert in this field. So this actually comes a lot from uh, research by Sesquins and others where they look at, you know, for a typical, let's say, a citizen working in a Western civilization in the U.S. or in North America, what would changing each action change uh, the carbon footprint? And the top one, obviously, um, has to do with having one fewer baby, but that's controversial because also, you know, your baby might also be the biggest problem solver. But the number two for a lot of us is commute. Driving and, less, right? driving less. Driving less. Well, the pandemic, the pandemic forced that. You know, I live in California and I don't live that far from Los Angeles. I live in north of San Diego. But, you know, I noticed the air quality change just because there wasn't any commuting, right? Um, and I'm sure in New York, too, you guys noticed the difference um, because of the, the, the lack of people commuting. And I kept telling people, well, if there's really one good thing that's coming from the pandemic, it's that we're cleaning up our air. <laughs> and actually, then I heard some scientists actually talking about it globally. And it was fascinating. All the commuting worldwide that just stopped had a, had a pretty significant effect on CO2 emissions. You are definitely right. And there are cycles of these different social measures, how it affects it in publishing scientific studies. Yeah, But, you know, just, just as a reference, I think, uh, and I'm definitely guilty of this being, having a very international background, one international travel could easily change your yearly carbon footprint by one ton of CO2. Mm-hmm which is much more than an average person that's say in South Asia produce each year. And I feel like we got to feel some responsibility for that. And maybe in our future business travel, we maybe at least even consolidate three trips to one will, will help you save two people's carbon footprint an entire year. And that's pretty tremendous compared to that. Say if you're just trying to, you know, turn off a light, although it helps, but then it's not the, the 80-20 that you want to focus on the most in change. Well, you know, we've seen an evolution in this country and Taiwan and all these countries from, you know, you look back in history, maybe your parents, your grandparents, we were an agricultural society. Uh, we needed big agriculture to feed the people. Today now with chemicals, unfortunately, we can grow more plants quicker, feed more people. I'm not saying it's better. I'm just saying that that's a fact. That's what's going on. Then we moved to an industrial revolution, including Taiwan, including China. We saw pollution coming from this industrial revolution. 
Then we went from industrial evolution to what I say called technology revolution. But I think we're on the verge of a new revolution. And that revolution to me is this merger of really the way that we're utilizing technology to solve these very complicated problems. And um, I do believe we're on the verge of solving some very monumental problems globally as well. Now, that's my own commentary, but you know, you speak about writing this book and you were sharing your mission about writing the book. And I think the key is you sharing your missions with a Toastmaster group and you asked them to raise their hands and how many people wanted to write a book. I've written two books myself, so I know this. Um, and 40 hands went up. And then you asked how many people actually have completed writing a book. And there were only four hands left up. Um, this, this is controversial, what you're talking about here, meaning validation from others. There are uh, psychologists that don't believe you should do this. I, I'm a contrary to it. I believe that doing what you recommended is good. So why do you believe the validation from others is such a good inspiration and motivation uh, to keep you writing your book? Because these people afterwards kept emailing you saying, is your book done? Is your book done? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think, yeah, it really, it probably depends on your personality, but it definitely works well for, for me. And it seems like yeah. for you. Uh, and I think I, I heard in a Chinese speech once people call this arresting yourself. So basically what I did was I go to Toastmaster and give the speech and said that, and this was just before a pandemic. I say, I'm working on this book and this is a topic. And then I asked, you know, who has thought about writing a book and then who has actually started writing a book and then who has actually, obviously like the hands just dramatically goes down. But once I say that, you know, even if the people didn't email me, in the back of my head, next I was like, oh, shoot, next time I meet this so-and-so in that meeting, he's going to ask Quan, like, where's your book at? Like, oh, yeah. how's the progress on that? So you, you just kind of have that in the back of your mind. You got to keep working on it. And I think this goes in, uh, into account of a lot of the habits you can build, right? If you're committed to, you know, walking to work five, three days a week to reduce your carbon footprint, maybe you'll tell your friend that. And then in the office, then maybe, you know, next week they see you like, driving to the office four days a week, they'll be like, oh, Quan, what are you doing? I think you just told me that last week. You know, so you have this kind of social pressure. And I think in a good thing, in a good way that we are all connected to this kind of interdependence and, you know, the solve it yourself philosophy is very independent. You can solve many problems, but a lot of times we can also leverage others to help us achieve our mission. And maybe at the same time, we're also, you know, have build a comfortability for them. And you'll be like, you want to do it together? You know, you're driving to work four days a week too. Why don't you walk with me? And let's see who walk more to work, that kind of thing. So I think it's it's really helpful to work. Well, I think if together. the day comes when we're, again, we're using solar energy to power electric cars or whatever type of transportation and the car is filled and it's autonomously being driven, taking people to wherever they're supposed to go, this is a future I can see, which is not too far off. Um, and I think it's a good thing. And, you know, uh, Kwan, you tackle everything from climate change to reducing chronic disease burden um, in SYI. How can SYI become a tool for our listeners to take action on their own passion project? Now, I know you gave them a toolkit. You outlined the tools. But more importantly, you know, when you finish this book, I had it on Kindle and I was 
reading it. Um, uh, what what is it that can happen, and what are three takeaways that you would like to leave the audience with, as far as the book, uh, finding their passion, and fulfilling their human potential? I would say because this is really a book. You know, you say in the book it's it's a part personal growth. I'd say it's about human potential. It's about us discovering that human potential and the opportunity to spark it and then move with it. Um, so those are two questions. One is, uh, what are the tools for the listeners? And two, what are three takeaways? Yeah. And so in terms of the tools for a listener, I hope that the framework is universally helpful. I find it really helpful for me to solve a lot of my personal problems, to solve the problem I see as important in the world. And obviously, it's great to have this big dream, but as you say, it's important to have these practical tips. So, you know, in the book, um, can they can they go to your website and download um, that framework? Is there a framework at the website that they can get, or do they need to buy? I mean, it's only ninety nine cents, so I'm not, you know, like, hey, if you can't afford ninety nine cents, you got a problem. But if you go to the website, I didn't see. Uh, the framework outlined at the website, but it might be. Yeah, it's not currently. Um, I think the best thing is if you can support the cost and buy it for 99 cents or revisit this podcast because we talked about it earlier. Yeah, I think if they listen to it again, that would be helpful too. Well, actually just reiterate because we're at the end of the podcast. What is the framework again? Just say it, give us the steps. So the four steps are identifying the root cause and that's a cause. And then it's a mindset, which is own your responsibility. Mm-hmm. And it's action. Number three, take proven actions. Number four is together, you can 10x your impact. And in the book, in the physical book, there's also this section where I, you know, people can identify their own passion and list out what they want to build as habit to solve what problem they're passionate about. I think the three biggest takeaway from the book, as you say, number one, Greg, is really to identify your purpose and really tying that together with the problem. That's the biggest challenge for yourself, for the people around you that you care about and for the society. Number one, really is your purpose. Number two is really to shift your mindset of, you know, blaming everyone else and think about how do I own this as a responsibility? Because once I own this as a responsibility, I can change my life. I can change the life of people around me and I can make the world better. So once you have that responsibility, actually you own the power after you own the responsibility. And number three is the simple thing. You know, once you have the mission, once you own the responsibility, you'll figure it out. But there's a lot of practical steps of finding out what's the actual proven action that give you the highest leverage according to parietal role. A lot of the scientific studies, us scientists kind of, I think as a profession, do work for you to be able to do it. And and then eventually you will be able to take these actions and start taking actions and, um, you know, influencing the world in a way that you want to see. And so well, I think that's it really. Going I think, I think that's like a that. great summary of the book, Quan. And I think that uh, for our listeners, again, uh, you're going to go to K-U-A-N-L-I-N-H-U-A-N-G dot com. And I'm going to repeat that one more time. That's K-U-A-N-L-I-N-H-U-A-N-G dot com. 
to learn more about the book, Solve It Yourself, to learn more about openboxscience.org, to learn more about uh, Quan himself. Uh, I think all of it there is an opportunity for you to learn. And I think that's the most important thing. If you take one thing away from this podcast, um, it's that you learned something about yourself. Uh, you learned something you can apply to yourself and something you can move forward with a cause that's important to you to take an action on. Um, I, I'll use a simple example. You know, for months now, I've been talking about the, I did a podcast with a guy out of London. Um, who wrote a book, not the Green New Deal, but it was a it was a different book. I did one on the Green New Deal too. But his was about the challenges. Now get this, and he was the like a specialist in this area of um uh organic of the waste, meaning banana peels and avocado peels and all the things that people don't recycle, right? They basically put it down the trash, they put it in their trash can. And I did this like four months ago, and I was thinking, why don't, why doesn't our refuge system uh, here locally have that? And lo and behold, about a week ago, a box comes at the front door saying, "We want you to recycle all of your banana peels and you, you know your your organic waste through here, and all you have to do is put it into the waste bin uh, with the yard waste because we're going to compost it all." We're going to compost all of that. And I was just, you you know, you look at it, it's one small little step, but one huge problem solved. Because if you really knew the problem we have with food waste, um, you would really look at that and go, wow. I mean, the podcast was just phenomenal. And actually, the leading country is Italy in food waste. Uh, They led the charge uh, in reducing food waste. So look, it really didn't take much. Somebody probably contacted my, um, I'm going to use this as an example, my refuge company. And over time, they got enough calls that people said, how come we can't compost all the stuff we're throwing away into the trash can? And lo and behold, there's a little plastic thing that comes at the door that says, put it all in here. That's a pretty interesting example, right? That's a remarkable story. It's great great to be composting, Greg. Yeah. Yeah. Are you composting? So in Taiwan, we actually everyone in Taiwan compost. Okay. Unfortunately, I haven't figured out in a way in the New York City to do it yet, but hopefully that that can will uh, manifest in New York City. Well, too. I will tell you if you have a, a waste disposal system that divides it, you can buy little bags on Amazon that you put that in, and they're mm-hmm. all compost. They're a hundred percent biodegradable. So just start putting it in the bags and then putting it in your green waste. That see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thanks for telling me that. Yeah. See, that's <laughs> like, well, that's like walking to work, you know, who knows what we did. So thank you so much for being on Quan and spending some time with our listeners. The book is solve it yourself. Um, and it's like how you can fix uh, the world's problems with science. It's been a pleasure having you on inside personal growth. Have a wonderful rest of your afternoon and enjoy. Thank you, Greg.